Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. If you uh, have just started coming in the last few weeks, or if you're new this morning, you probably won't have seen me before. My name is Richie Cronin. I'm the Assistant Minister in Kirkpatrick, and it's, uh, it's good to be here this morning. What I'm going to do this morning uh, is I'm just going to go through the passage explaining as I go along. I'm not going to explain every single thing. There's a lot in there. Um, But it's the kind of passage, once you explain, you don't have to think too much, too hard about what it means for you. Um, It's like Ron Seal, you know, it does exactly what it says on the tin. So application-wise, it's pretty obvious. But before we start, let me say this, though. This, this isn't bad news. It's hard news. That's how I think of it anyway. Jesus is talking about the, the coming judgment of everybody. Everyone. And it would be bad news if this was just a for, about a foregone conclusion. Or about something that had already happened. And from God's point of view, it is. But we live in the present and we don't have access to the future. So this isn't bad news. I prefer to say this is hard news because it's just Jesus telling it straight. He doesn't pull any punches here. One day, everyone in this room, everyone in the world, unless he comes back, will die and we will all go before God. That's that's behind everything he's saying right here. And if you haven't been living a life for God, which is usually, but not always, the same thing as asking, are you a Christian? But if you haven't been living life for Jesus, then your judgment won't be good, and you'll be punished accordingly. He doesn't say much about what that punishment will be. He does say it will be gradiated, so it will be more severe for some than for others. He doesn't go into what that punishment is, how long it's for, etc., etc. For those details, you have to go to other parts of God's word, and traditionally, and the majority as well, of Christians have believed in a place called hell that is eternal. So, it's definitely hard news. It might turn out to be bad news, but for the moment, it's just hard. Now, after saying all of that, um, It doesn't actually start off so hard. The first section has some good news in it. It starts off with Jesus warning us to live a life of preparedness for the return of the Master. Right? Now we know that from his own reference to himself as the Son of Man in verse 40, at the end of this little story, that the Master is himself. And we know that the Son of Man is a messianic term. It refers to the Messiah. And the original hearers would have taken all of this story then to refer to the end of history. So that's what he's talking about. So the command here is simple enough. You must be living in such a way that if he comes back, you won't be surprised by his coming. And, I, and I, you know, Billy did a good job there of actually explaining that. I'll talk about that in a minute. But firstly, let's look at this, this good news that we have here. And it's this, there will be a reward for those who are not caught by surprise when he comes back. Verse 37 says that we will have God serve us as we have served him. He serves us. I, 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 you know, I don't know if I'd ever looked at this before. I'm still finding new things in the Bible. 
16 years into this game and my mind is still is somewhat blown away by this idea God tells us in different parts of the Bible that there will be rewards for Christians who stay faithful usually it's tied to how we have lived as Christians and of course it goes without saying but I'll say it anyway we don't earn our salvation we don't earn forgiveness we don't earn our entrance to heaven we don't earn a relationship that's all a gift from God to those who have faith but rewards in the next life based on our obedience in this life is a real thing it's not a huge part of the biblical teaching but it's there nonetheless here however he seems to be saying something incredible that if you serve me I will reward you by serving you at my table now I, I take great joy in the various pictures the Bible paints of the next world I haven't always it's only the last few years that for some reason they've really taken hold of me I think it's I discovered that the this discovering of the original plan of God was for us to spread the Garden of Eden around the world basically turning the earth into some form of temple where God and man live a prototype of heaven and it's amazing to me but the everyday meaning for that is that heaven isn't an escape heaven was always the plan that's what we were designed for and this idea I, I mean I just love it I can't get enough of it and I suppose previous to understanding that I was very wary of talking about heaven because it feels like you're just advising people you know to shove their head up into the clouds and forget about all the problems that we have here and especially at a time these days when Christianity and Christians so often seem to forget it's calling to do earthly good the last thing I want to do is encourage escapism and forgetting about caring for your neighbour but anyway the point is those pictures are amazing life with God and all the believers from all of history all the people here today all the people that you've lost all the people we will lose living together living life as, always, as we always felt it should be, forever. That's amazing. But here, we're given this tiny little detail of what some of that will look like. And we're told that Jesus is telling us that he's going to serve us at his own table. Now, you know, is, is that to be taken literally? I don't know. Will God incarnate himself come round to my section at the table at this great banquet that is to come lean over my shoulder and ask me more wine, Richie? And don't mind if I do, Jesus. It's almost absurd, isn't it? And yet that's the level of intimacy that he promises here. I tell you the truth, I, I don't really know what to do with it. But it feels good. And I suppose in the same way that all the other pictures of the life to come encourage me to live now as if the future was here, then I will live as if Jesus recognizes all of my service to him. And one day, he will pour me a drink as a reward. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But as I said, this is mostly a hard news passage. It's mostly <clears throat> actually just warning after warning. 
And Peter, who is often the guy who turns the conversation to more earthly matters, just when he, sh- when, when he shouldn't, asks him a question. Is this for us or for all people? Now, Peter is not talking about Christians and non-Christians. He's wondering if this unbelievable idea of God serving us, is that for the apostles or is it for all the believers? And Jesus, of course, as is usual, answers in a way that not only answers the question, but includes information that reveals the ignorance of the asker. Peter's only thinking about the reward part of this parable that's just been told, but Jesus wants him to see that there was an implied threat or warning in there as well. And being watchful is not just about believing that Jesus could come back at any minute. Billy just said that. It doesn't mean that you live. It doesn't mean here that you live a life waiting and wondering if today will be the day that Jesus comes back. Rather, it's the kind of life you would lead if you had accepted that you belong to God and that you are His servant. The servants qualify as being ready because they accept what they are and live as a servant should. The servant lives life being accountable to God alone. That kind of life is very different to the one where you follow your own desires, where you are accountable to no one, or maybe you're just accountable uh, to your friends, family, or country, but not to God. And you know what? It's important to say uh, that from the outside, somebody living for God and someone, say, living for their family or country might do and say very similar things a lot of the time. There's a lot of people out there who lead good lives, but it's not because they see themselves as servants of God. But we should, and if we do, we will live a life that is prepared for his return. Now, before I go forward, let me me say that there uh, uh, there is an application here, actually. For any of us that get wrapped up in all this stuff about the end times... I don't mind saying that uh, I've spent some some time thinking about that topic in the last year or so. Uh, Does various parts of the Bible, but particularly Daniel chapter 9, uh, Matthew 23, and Revelation chapter 20, does it teach that there will be a huge falling away of the church and soon after Jesus will come back, take all the Christians to heaven, then rule on this earth for a thousand years, followed by Armageddon where Satan is defeated, and then it's the end? Or does it teach that the world will get progressively more Christian and Christianized, at which point there will be a golden age of Christian rule, which will be followed by a time of church apostasy, followed by Armageddon, after which Jesus will come back, and that will be the end? Or, and I might add, this is the one that usually Presbyterians have believed, does the Bible teach that at some point in the future there will be a huge apostasy of Christians, followed by Armageddon, and then Jesus comes back, the end? No. I don't mind saying, well, fun is probably the wrong word, but I've enjoyed getting to know all of that and looking into it. But if you get wrapped up in this and it makes you forget what you should be doing, you've missed the point. Now, don't get, don't get me wrong. You know, it has helped me to look at this stuff, but the primary way it has helped me to look at it is it's reminded me of one of the key things that he's trying to teach here. This, this does end there is an end it doesn't go on forever we will all meet our God one day and be judged 
The moment I think about these things detracts from you from the central point, especially if it stops you doing things, then you need to step away from it. Anyway, as I said, Peter admits that there was a warning in Jesus' words. He was too focused on figuring it out if he was the special one. But Jesus was clear. If you are ready, if you are his servants, then good things will happen to you when the master comes back. And if he finds you waiting for him. But clearly that means that if he finds you asleep on the job or doing something you shouldn't be doing, well that's problematic for you. And that's why he tells Peter about these four individuals. Whereas before he was focused on the good servant and the warning was only implied, with these four people he makes it clear that as well as there being reward for the prepared servant, there will be punishment for those who are not prepared. And here let me make a kind of a, a, I suppose, a newsworthy topical point. It's interesting to note, right, in verse 42 or 43, that the faithful servant in this parable is the one who is feeding the other servants. That's his job. Caring for others. Now, I wouldn't use these verses to label the entirety of what we are supposed to be doing as Christians. Like, I don't think he is saying providing for others is the sum total of our faith. And yet, it is interesting that when Jesus chooses a metaphor to describe just that, the outworking of our faith, he chooses the image of feeding others. Is your salvation dependent on whether you look after the hungry? No. But if you can't allow that your faith should have the hallmark of looking after those who need your help, then it might be in danger. <coughs> Jesus goes on then to break down those whose salvation is in danger into three different groups. Those who know God's will but spend their time abusing people. Those who know God's will and don't get ready for him and don't do what they should. And then lastly, don't, those who don't know God's will and don't do what he wants. Now, um, I just want you to see a few things because I, I think that's fairly self-explanatory. But the biggest punishment is handed out to Christians, or at least so-called Christians. If you know about Jesus, if you know about his word, you know what it teaches, but still ignore God, you could be in for a bad time. But if you go one step further, and you're spending your time on pleasures and being violent, then you're in for an even worse time. As I said earlier, punishments in the afterlife are not uniform. There will be worse ones for some based on how they've lived their lives. I don't know if any of you have read Dante's Inferno, maybe? No? This isn't the classics place. Anyway, you might know the picture, right? It's not the most biblically based version of hell, but he's got the nine levels. Did you ever see those pictures now? Google it when you go home. It's, it's just freaky stuff, you know, people getting tortured and all that stuff. But anyway, he's saying there's different levels to it, right? And, you know, let me say this. The drunken lad who beats up pe people, it's a popular image in our society. Yeah? And we all know some of these boys. Uh, but don't make the mistake of thinking that this is just some working class lad who falls out of the pub every night and thinks nothing of hitting his wife or partner. Yeah, if he doesn't repent, he'll get what's coming to him. But let's be clear. 
the rich man or woman who has made their money standing on the backs of others, you might not see their violence because it's done on the other side of the world. And their drunkenness might be found in the shape of big, huge houses, lots of cars, general excess. But they are guilty too. And in fact, they might be more guilty because their sins affect more people. If that's you, turn today. Turn right now. I've known people to go in the middle of services. So yeah, the biggest punishment is for hypocrites saying you're a Christian but in no way acting like it. And then Jesus goes on to talk about two more kinds of people. The first are these folk who don't know about him and his ways but they still don't do what they should. Now, what's the difference between them and the lads I just talked about? Um, well, I think these people are religious I think they come to church, they might even be involved, but the difference is that although religion curbs their behavior, it's not the center thing in their life. You might do the odd bit of serving God, but you won't be ready when he comes back because it's not number one in your life. You don't like having to get up in the middle of the night for things that are not a priority to you. It's not the anchor for all your behaviors. It's just a part, maybe even an important part. And sometimes... I've seen it. It's harder for those folk to turn to God because it means admitting that you've been a hypocrite all those years, despite coming to church for all those years. But again, if that's you, it's better to admit being a hypocrite than face the punishment of God. And then lastly, there's these folk who who know nothing of God but still don't do what is right. And uh, I suppose the question of what happens to those who haven't heard of God, is it fair that they get condemned when they've never had a chance to repent? It's a great question. Uh, I have an answer to it. mightn't satisfy you. Either way, you're not going to hear it because not, I don't want to get into it. But it's a bigger topic than we have space for today. I, uh, but I, I do want you to see something, right? I, I probably did just dodge the bullet there. I'm going to put my hands up, but I'm still not telling you. And that is, I do want you to see this, right? He is making a point. That Jesus puts the stress on their behavior, as he's been doing with everyone so far. Their ignorance of God's will, he takes that into account. But no one is innocent. That's the thing. Right. All this talk of judgment is heavy. And Jesus, he clearly feels this himself. His mind turns to the end. And he declares that he came to bring fire on earth and how he wishes it was already started. And this verse is, it's kind of shocking really, isn't it? You know, in Kirkpatrick, I don't think we could be guilty of thinking that our vision of Jesus is Jesus meek and mild. You know that song? Nice, sweet little Jesus. I think we know that's not true. But even I feel uncomfortable with Jesus' words here. However, I do understand it. You see, a key plank of Jesus' mission is the end of it all. And he wishes it was over. And you know, this goes back to something that we looked at a few months ago. God promised Noah 
and by extension us, that he would not destroy the world again because of the evil of man until the end of everything. So way, way back there, at the very start of the Bible, way back at the beginning, we see two things that are playing out here in, G- in these words of Jesus. God can't stand evil in the world. He's always wanting to do something about it. But since Noah, he's promised he's restraining himself. And just as he did in the days of Noah, there will come a time when he will get rid of it all again. I mean, when you think about it, all the great cults in the world, all the end-time sects and religions, they were onto something. You know, they, or rather their leaders, I should say, tapped into the idea that we all feel something is really wrong with the world and it would feel great it would feel right that God would want to end all that well that's the same motivation that is driving Jesus here except unlike all those crazy cult leaders Jesus actually is God he actually is the Messiah and he actually will sort out everything and everyone And this then is why he says this stuff about bringing division. You see, Jesus is either talking crazy or he is talking the truth. And the cults and some Christians make the mistake of getting obsessed with the details of the end. But for a lot of people, the mistake they make is just thinking this is rubbish, this is nonsense. Judgment, the end of the world. Give me a break. In fact, I was talking to two of our teenage girls here on Friday night and they were they were in a debate over in Strathern, a formal debate and uh, one of them stood up and said something I can't quite get it precisely but they were mentioning judgments and based on our morality and all this kind of stuff and the opposition were like, what? Do you really believe that? And they were a bit, a bit hostile towards them. But, yeah, that's why I think he only talks about families here in verse 52 and 3, because your friends can drift off and ignore you, but the family, they've got to deal with you forever. And if they don't believe, sometimes it's easier for them to leave than to have to hear about you talking about Jesus again, or living in such a way as to make them think about Jesus again. Now the next three sections, this bit where he gives out to the crowd for not discerning the times, the story about the the people Pilate killed and the tower that fell, and then finally the story of the fig tree. In a sense, all these stories are making the same point. And it's not a point that's all that different from what we've heard so far. Basically, what he's saying is this. You need to turn to me now. Like today, if you can. That first story about the weather and the wind, he's given out to them because they can understand physical phenomena, but they have failed to understand what he, the Messiah, who's standing in front of them, represents. He then tells them, just like you should, or just like you would, sorry, try and avoid prison at all costs if you owed somebody something. You better go and try and reconcile with him before it's too late, or you will be put in prison. 
And then uh, this kind of makes a reaction in them, and, uh, and the idea that good folk, the good folk who are listening to him, might have something to, to change about their lives, or the fact that they might be in trouble with God, that's shocking to them. They are of the opinion that bad things only happen to bad people. That's why they asked Jesus about the story of Pilate killing the Galileans. Surely, Jesus, surely they deserved it. Now, oftentimes with Jesus, um, sometimes they'll ask him a question, and then he starts off on some story, and you don't know where he's going. It's like, are you going to answer the question, Jesus? But here, Jesus is uncharacteristically, incredibly direct. You think they were worse because they suffered? No, he says. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And he doesn't end it there either because this story of the fig tree is basically his way of saying, God won't wait around for you. If you've not been producing fruit, which is the God's way of talking about what you see when someone lives the life that God wants you to live, if there's no fruit, well then the time to be cut down is very soon. And the meaning of that, for any of you who haven't been producing fruit, is that God is gracious. If you've heard them this morning and you know that you have not been producing fruit, you've not been following him, well, the time to change is now. No. He will give you some more, some more time. But maybe not much more. And that's it. But let me finish with one thing. Because he couldn't say all of that. Some of you might go away from all of that with a fire lit under you to go and tell folk about the coming judgment. And I think that's at least one natural response to hear about all of this. Probably not what any of you be up to. I don't know, maybe. Who knows? But actually I think that that might miss how Jesus talks about this here. He does get into it and he is direct but then he moves on. Some evangelicals have been known, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, for banging on and on about the coming judgment extensively. You know, the guy with the sandwich board, judgment cometh, written across the board. Well, yes, it is cometh-ing, but there is more to say than that. There's more to do than that. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, okay, Richie, we don't have to go on about it, but can we just forget about it altogether? No. Sorry. It's in there. You've got to say it. But you know what? Here's the thing. This is what Jesus does. He loves them. That's why he tells them the truth. He told us the truth. We're only responding in kind. And surely a part of being a good servant is to tell the truth, especially, especially when you're asked. And if that's still too much for you, just remember, it's worth it. One day, you'll get a little tap on your shoulder. And Jesus, the Son of God, will ask you, What can I get for you? So keep going. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that you introduced these ideas to us. Thank you for your cross, that you took our punishment and we won't be taking it. Give us courage, Father, when we need it. And help us to love people enough to be able to tell them the truth, even when it costs us our relationship. Amen.